0: We owe it to the world to proclaim the news of Jesus' sacrificial death. So last time we talked about our privileges and our duties before the Lord those that we have unto God, and we identify the central, the fundamental duty that we as God's people have is to be present when the assembling of God's people happens, when the gathering of God's people, when they come together, to be among God's people unless providentially prevented in a way that is prepared to meet our Lord, in a way that is prepared to come before and seek the face of the Lord. So we talked about that last time. We talked about some some ways that we can do that and actually put that into place as we are going through our week, as we are going through our Saturday, even driving in on Sunday morning to prepare ourselves spiritually to do business with the Lord. Now, this morning, we want to take that and we want to build on that. And we want, we want to look at the other two categories that we identified These categories of our duties and privileges to one another and our duties and privileges to the Lord. I'm I'm sorry, to the world. And we said last time, of course, there's going to be a lot of overlap in all these. Our duties to the Lord can't necessarily be completely isolated from our duties to one another and vice versa and so on. So there's a lot of overlap here. But I think this is probably the, the most helpful way for us to kind of get our arms around some of these duties and privileges that are ours in the Lord. So. The scriptures talk to us about duties and privileges, and they talk to us about the blessing of serving the Lord. We talked last time about how our duties and privileges are one and the same. But the scriptures also talk to us using another manner of description to describe our life in the church. Duties and privileges is one, but another is also debts. The scripture tells us that we are all debtors. Everybody in the room We're all debtors, and some of us probably painfully know that, wish we weren't, but I'm not speaking of financial debts, I'm speaking of spiritual debts. All of us in the room are spiritual debtors, and we're going to kind of flesh that out as we go along. The scriptures teach us that we are debtors to one another, and the scriptures teach us that we are debtors to the world, that we owe a debt to the world. So that might be something that we find... Perhaps objectionable, that the body of Christ is not beholden to the world. We're not beholden to fallen sinners and the fallen world around us. But as we work through this, I think that you'll agree that this is what the Scriptures teach us as long as we understand the angle that we're coming from. So we are all debtors. The church is made up of debtors. We might, we might think of the Scriptures that tell us that we've been set free from our debts. We have this sin debt, and Jesus on the cross takes our sin debt and by faith in Christ, we are freed from our debt of sin because Christ has paid, us, has paid that debt. And all that is very true. But the scriptures also teach us that our life in Christ is often characterized in terms of exchanges. There are many exchanges that take place when we receive life in Christ. For example, our sin is exchanged for Christ's righteousness. Our darkness is exchanged for light. Our disordered desires are exchanged, or at least a process has begun of exchanging those for godly desires. Our unrighteousness is exchanged for holiness of life. Our fallen thoughts are exchanged for righteous thoughts. And on and on we could go. There's this process of an exchange that takes place. Christ takes from us, the darkness, the blackness, the sin, and in exchange we we receive all good things. Well, we also have an exchange of debts. So we have this debt of sin that we owe. Christ takes that debt upon Himself and He pays it in full on the cross. In exchange for that, we don't become debt free. Like you know, when when Jesus says, "If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed." That doesn't mean we're now completely debt free. What that means is we have now exchanged a very bad debt for a good debt. In a similar way that when we exchange masters, we, we trade the old master of sin, we're a slave to sin, we trade the old master for a new master. In a similar way, we trade our old debt for new debt. And the new debt is going to include debt to one another and as well as debt to the world. So we have this debt that we owe to one another and a debt to the world. Let's just begin, I think, by just establishing in our thoughts that the scriptures make a distinct differentiation between the members of the body of Christ and the rest of the world. It's helpful to remind ourselves of that, right? That we live in a time, we live in an age in which More and more churches are going to sort of a system of whoever's here is here, and and we hope you come, and if you're not here, and there's sort of this no commitment kind of thing. More and more churches are going to that way of thinking. But the scriptures teach us that the church, the bride of Christ, is something that the New Testament sees as distinct and different from those who are not the bride of Christ. So it might sound like a very basic place to begin, but I think it's a helpful place to begin. The scriptures often describe it with words that are translated something like outsiders. The King James will translate it with the words those without, those who are without. You might have come across that phrase in the scriptures. It comes to us many times in the scriptures, those who are without or some modern translations, like our ESV, will use a word like outsiders. For example, Mark 4, and verse 11. Jesus said to them, To you it's been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, or those without, everything is in parables. So there's this distinction between those who are within and those who are without. It's the same word used here in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 12, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. So clearly in that context, there is a place that's identified as inside. That's inside the house where Jesus is. And then those who are not in the house are outside. Jesus is in the house teaching. His mother and brothers are outside the house because they can't get in too many people inside same word that's used here to describe those who are in the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household of God, all those metaphors we talked about last week. Same word used to describe those who are within and those who are without. Let's look at a few more examples. 1 Corinthians 5. What have I to do to, with judging those who are without or outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Is it not those within the household of God, God judges those outside. Or Colossians 4 and verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are without or those who are outside. First Thessalonians 4, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. First Timothy 3, an elder must do- be well thought of by outsiders or those without the church. So clearly, the New Testament writers had a... a firm grasp that there is a distinction between those who are within the body of Christ, those who are members of the body, those who are part of the bride, those who are incorporated into the household of God, and those who are not, those who are without. Furthermore, the New Testament has this, this understanding that when the people of God come together, oftentimes there's a mixture of those who are within the house of God and those who are without of the house of God are those who are unbelievers. We, We think of Paul's conversation with the Corinthian believers and their abuse of the spiritual gifts and everything. And as he talks to them about how they're abusing these spiritual gifts, he says, therefore, if the whole church comes together and everybody's speaking in tongues and all outsiders and unbelievers enter, then they're going to say, you're out of your minds. So Paul's saying there's this gathering. And the gathering is a gathering of the members of the body, the body of Christ, but mixed in are those who are not of the body. There's those within, and among those within, there are those without. So there's this expectation that oftentimes, when the body gathers, there's also a mixture of those who are not of the body. But then the question becomes, well, the the understanding of the New Testament is that there is a distinction. There are those in the body and those not in the body. The question is, well, is this whole practice of, keeping a list, biblical, or is it not biblical? This sort of harkens us back to the days previously when, you know, the phrase would be the role, keeping the role, or on the role of the church, right? And it was just this idea that there was a list of people that were the members of that body. Now, that whole scenario comes with a lot of issues that we don't have time to go into that, but the question, the basic question is, is it a biblical practice to keep track, to keep a list, to to say these are in the body and these are not in the body. Again, a lot of churches these days are going to a way of doing church that's much less committal, that's much more geared toward those coming and worshiping without commitment. And a lot of churches are, are sort of making those changes the question that we should ask is, which, which practice is biblical? Did the early church have this understanding that they kept track of who, that they knew who was within and who was without? That this idea of those within and those without was not sort of this nebulous spiritual thing that only God really knew, but that the church also, to the best of their ability, had an understanding of who was within and who was without. Now, we won't take a lot of time to go through this, but... I just want to hit on it in a, couple, in a couple of places and show us that the New Testament had this underlying understanding that the church knew who was theirs and who was not theirs. That the church knew whether or not there was an actual list or whether it was just in the heads of the elders really is irrelevant. What's relevant is that the church understood who belonged to them and who was maybe coming among them that wasn't one of them. There was an understanding of who that was and who it wasn't. There's no chapter and verse in our New Testament that says, Thou shalt keep a list of the members of the body. But instead, we see this underlying understanding, this assumption that comes along with many of the scriptures of the New Testament. For example, we look to this passage in Hebrews chapter 13, where we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So the writer exhorts the Hebrew believers to submit to your leaders. Why? Because they are keeping watch over your souls in such a way that they will have to give an account. So the elders of that church will stand before God and give an account In some sense, they will give a spiritual account of those whom they led. I will give a spiritual account of those whom I lead. But the question then becomes, well, how do you know? If there's not an understanding among the church who is within and who's without, then how can the elders be expected to give account when we don't know who we're even giving account for? Will we give account for those who come, maybe drop by once a month, a couple times a month? Will we give account for those who visit a few times a year? Will we give account for those who are usually here? But who, who will we give account for? Is the God whose name is justice, will he not do what's just and what's fair? And certainly, is it not fair? not just that those who will stand before him to give an account should know who we will give an account for and who we will not give an account for. So it's almost just like this assumption. It's just assumed. Think about Acts chapter 6. You know the story where the church is young and there's these widows, the Greek widows and the Hebrew-speaking widows, and the Greek-speaking widows are kind of being neglected and some of them don't have enough food and that sort of thing. And then they established the the first deacon ministry and everything. Later on, as Paul writes to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy these instructions about feeding the widows among them, feeding the, the widows that are in the body of Christ there at Ephesus. And he says to them these requirements, so to speak. These are widows that are to be fed, and these are widows that are not to be fed. So it wasn't like a soup kitchen. You know, a soup kitchen, you just show up, and if you show up, you get food. Wasn't like a soup kitchen. There was organization. There was set, there was set to a biblical, godly organization that said, these widows are deserving of support from the church. These other widows in these other situations, then they can do other things to, to support themselves. So the question would be, well, how does that even work if you don't know which widows are within and which widows are without? The only way that can work is that the church knows Who is the body of Christ and who's not the body of Christ? Or many other places. It's something that we can see in many instances in the New Testament. But hopefully that suffices to to help us to just have the assurance that we are being biblical when we approach the body of Christ in such a way that, that says, To the best of our ability, the church should know who is within and who is without. So under that basis, let's now return just to the whole topic of debts. And let's sort of take this and let's push it just a little bit further. This idea that we are debtors to one another, and particularly let's start with the idea that we're debtors to the world. Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 14, I'm under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians. Now that word obligation, it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6 to, say, to teach us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? So it's, it's the word for debts, owing, owing a debt. Paul says, I owe a debt, I'm under obligation, and I owe an obligation to, as he says, two groups of people, uh, Greeks and barbarians, which, is, which was, would be another way of saying all those who are without, remember the within's and the without's, all those without, I owe this debt to them, And the debt that I owe is essentially, I'm going to paraphrase Paul's words here, the debt that I owe is to take this gospel to them. Now, again, we might hear this idea of the church owing the fallen world, and we might think that doesn't quite sound biblical, that God's people are beholden to lost people. How how does this work? I think that it's two ways to think about a debt. And if we can distinguish those two in our minds, that might help us to sort of navigate through this. The first way to think of a debt would be the normal way that we use the word debt or the idea of a debt. Normally, when we talk about a debt, we mean somebody has given us something or loaned us something, be it money or a car or something. Maybe they've just done a good favor for us, and we want to return that, either return the money they gave to us or the the good turn that they did for us or whatever it may be. That's typically how we think about a debt. A debt is sort of a two-way thing. You loan to me, I'm indebted to you, and so then I repay. But there's another way to think about a debt, not in in terms of a two-way obligation, but a three-way. Think of it this way. Let's say, for example, that um, Miranda, I'll pick on you, You give me 20 bucks and you say, give this to Mark, but Mark's not here. Well, let's take better, since Lisa's not here. Uh, You give this to me and you say, give this 20 bucks to Lisa. You're going to see her this week. I'm not going to see her. Give her this 20 bucks. Now, the $20 is Lisa's, but it's in my possession. Until I give that to her, do you see how there's a sense in which I owe Lisa The $20, it's hers. You've given it to her, but it's in my possession. And until it goes into her possession, I owe it to her. You see how there's a sense in which it works like that. That's the sense in which Paul says that he's a debtor to those without. He is a debtor because God has given something to Paul that he intends to be given to the Greeks and the barbarians. And that something is the gospel, the news, that Jesus has paid the sin debt. And they can repent and believe and receive forgiveness in His name. And so God has given that to Paul. And until Paul gives that to the Greeks and barbarians, He owes it to them. In a similar way that He says to the Colossians that He is filling up the the afflictions of Christ... It doesn't mean that Christ's suffering was lacking in any way, but it does mean that Christ's suffering for the Colossians does them no good until they know about it. And so Paul owes this debt to those without, and the debt is that God has given something to the Greeks and barbarians by way of Paul, and Paul has to take it to them, and until he does take it to them, he owes them in a sense not quite in the sense that he's beholden to them, and certainly not in the sense that the Greeks and barbarians have given something to Paul, but in the sense that Paul is in possession of something that's theirs. He's like a messenger. He's like a carrier to them. Now, the New Testament works in this way in a lot of ways. It tells us that we are indebted to the world Because we are in possession of something for them. We are in possession of something that God intended for them. And that is the news that the sin debt is paid. And we are to take this news to the world. Now, our debt to the world, what we owe those without, I think the scripture can kind of classify it in two ways. We owe a debt to the world. Again, the overall umbrella of that debt is the gospel news. But we can think of that debt of the gospel news in two ways. One, we owe a debt to the world of proclamation. We owe it to the world to proclaim the news of Jesus' sacrificial death. God has sent the news to them, to the whole world, and until we deliver it to them, we owe, we the church, owe the world that news. So we owe this debt of proclamation, but we also owe a debt of authentication. That means that we owe the world an authentication, a validation, a confirmation. And the confirmation that we owe them is this. Jesus Christ is creating a new humanity. This is what he did on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, Right? We are a new humanity. The old humanity in Adam is ruined. Ruined by sin. Jesus is recreating a new humanity with Him as the head. So we are the new humanity. All this is part of this gospel news that we owe the world. We are the new humanity that Jesus is creating here on earth. But we owe this debt to the world to not only proclaim that... But to authenticate that. And the scriptures teach us repeatedly that we owe to the world a true, valid authentication that we are the genuine new humanity that Jesus is creating here on earth.